Welcome to another episode of Omen Revelations Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Nunley, and with me as always is my friend and co-host, Steve Sellers. Today we're going to be talking about 1988's Willow, one of my all-time favorite fantasy films. I was 12 years old when I first saw it, and I immediately loved it. It was one of the few films we got to see in a theater when I was a kid. Uh, But now, as an adult, I find myself appreciating what all went into it. Uh, But I will get into that in more detail later. Uh, How about you, Steve? Uh, When did you first see Willow, and, and did you have any opening thoughts on it before we dive into this you know to be honest i don't remember when exactly i first saw it i was pretty young at the time as i recall um i think it was probably on video when i first saw willow if i remember it right anyway um i thought willow was a fun fantasy film when it came out and it still is on many levels and i enjoy it for what it is but i don't think willow uh, resonated with me in the same way that george lucas's other works like star wars and indiana jones did it, it could just be that George was trying to recapture the old lightning in a bottle and it just didn't land for me the way that those films did. But it might be that I'm not seeing it quite the same way you are. So uh, why don't we get into it? That sounds like a great idea. Uh, George Lucas originally came up with the idea that would become Willow in 1972, though it was called Munchkins back then. George mm-hmm. Lucas created Willow after trying to secure the film rights to The Hobbit. Lucas explained that he had to wait until the mid-80s to make the film until visual effects technology finally advanced enough to execute his vision. Sometime around 1985, actor-turned-director Ron Howard was looking to do a fantasy film, and while he was at Industrial Light and Magic doing post-production on 1985's Cocoon, George Lucas and he talked about Howard directing Willow. They, of course, knew each other from Lucas's American Graffiti film, uh, but what I did not know and was kind of surprised to find out was that Lucas felt that he and Ron Howard shared a symbiotic relationship similar to the one he he enjoyed with Steven Spielberg. Uh, That is saying quite a bit, considering that Ian Spielberg created the great Indiana Jones. Uh, You know, Ron Howard actually passed on directing 1988's Cocoon the Return to direct Willow, despite having directed the original film. Yeah, and I'll add uh, as an aside that uh, Bryce uh, Dallas Howard, uh, Ron Howard's daughter, actually had met Lucas during this time. And I think this is probably the reason why she's involved with things like The Mandalorian now. So that relationship spans generations, which I find really cool. Anyway, um, it totally it, it totally makes sense that Willow started off as Lucas trying to do a Hobbit film. Um, there are clear parallels between the two, but we'll get into those connections in a little bit. Still, a major reason I think uh, all this adds up is that Lucas very often creates his own intellectual property when he can't get the rights to something. Uh, Star Wars came about because George Lucas wanted to do a Flash Gordon film, in fact, and he wasn't able to get the rights for that. So So at that point, he usually takes element of the one thing that he originally wanted to do, and then he mixes in other elements, you know, usually things based off of old serials or pulps or things like that he'd read elsewhere. Um, With Willow, it seemed like he started with the Hobbit script that he did, um, but we'll get into the specific Tolkien references before long. That we will. But as far as Lucas taking something he wanted to do and finding another way to go about it, I, I think that's pretty cool. That That's how you make lemonade out of lemons in the film business. I, I did something not too dissimilar when I created the Omenverse. So, you know, I like that. Uh, but let's get into the screenplay, Steve. Sure. Ron Howard uh, nominated uh, Bob Dolman to write the screenplay based on Lucas's story. Uh, Dolman had worked with him on a 1983 television pilot called Little Shots that had not resulted in a series. And Lucas had admired uh, Dolman's work on the uh, sitcom WKRP in Cincinnati. Uh, Dolman joined Howard and Lucas at Skywalker Ranch for a series of lengthy story conferences. And he wrote several drafts of his script between the spring and fall of 1986. The early drafts of the screenplay uh, contain more background information on the characters uh, Mad Mardigan and Sorsha. Now, um, the film itself, we don't really get that much from him, but when we meet Mad Mardigan, I mean, we find that he's been caged and he's been left to die, basically. He's a good swordsman and he definitely seems to know his way around the world in contrast to Willow. He's released from his cage and returned uh, for taking Elora Dannon, 
And eventually he takes the baby, but then he doesn't take the responsibility seriously at first. So Willow uh, later takes her back. Still, Laura does end up charming Mad Mardigan, and while she clearly prefers Willow, she eventually does end up trusting him as a protector. So by the end of the movie, uh, Mad Mardigan overcomes his roguish inclinations and becomes the hero that he needs to be at the end. Uh, there's also more to Sorsha that we saw in the movie. Uh, Sorsha was originally the daughter of the king of Tyr Aslin, who was a good man. Uh, and in fact, he's the regal old man seen at the end after the fall of Bab Morda and, and Tyr Aslin is restored. So he can be briefly seen, seen in stone. So that suggests that Sorsha had the capacity for good or let, she had learned it somewhere. Um, during the battle of Tyr Aslin uh, between Bab Morda's troops, uh, Mad Mardigan and the monster, Sorsha encountered her father and he struggled uh, through, through the stone to ask her for help which prompted Sorsha to switch allegiances for, from her evil mother to the good side. And honestly, that made a lot more sense to me than the swift redemption by love potion that we saw in the movie. <laughs> I mean, all of this backstory was regrettably lost in the final film, but it does appear in the novelization as well as the comic book miniseries by Marvel. But Mike, I think you had some points on Mad Mardigan that you wanted to discuss. I do, Steve, but let me say that I like that story about Sorcia and her father, and I personally think that it would have been nice to see in the movie. Uh, we, we can't be talking about more than like, you know, 20 minutes or so to cover that subplot. And and I think the film would have been better for it. It, it certainly would have made her conversion make more sense, like you said. Uh, but as for Mad Mardigan, uh, there are a few things about Mad Mardigan that I found while out while doing research for this episode that, that really filled in the blanks about Mad Mardigan as a character and helps to explain his relationship with Eric. Uh, Mad Mardigan was the son of a noble family in Galadorn and was given the finest education available so that one day he could take the political position among the nobility there in Galadorn. But Mad Mardigan had no heart for such things. He was far too reckless, restless, and often truant to attend such studies and classes. More often than not, he could be found in Galadorn's eclectic bazaars where he befriended some horsemen from the east who taught him archery and how to ride horses. At the age of 10, Mad Mardigan killed four to eight bloodthirsty pohas while saving his friends and caught the eye of the famous swordsman Ronero, who took Mad Mardigan on as an apprentice after seeing his raw talent. Ronero taught Mad Mardigan the lost art of Sushin. Sushin, literally translated as mosquito, was a, a school of sword fighting that originated in the northeast kingdoms beyond the mountains of Nakmar. It stressed clever and skillful maneuvering, delicate control of the blade tip, and above all, finesse. Unfortunately, Ronero died before Mad Mardigan became a knight. Mad Mardigan befriended knight Eric Thawbear, but never spent much time with his fellow knights, preferring the company of the caravan drivers. But then things got very bad for Mad Mardigan when he fell in love with a princess of Kashmir named Charisma. Charisma gave Mad Mardigan an ultimatum. He must reveal secrets of the court and violate the knight's code that he swore or lose her and have his heart broken. To complicate matters further, Minister Jareth of Galadorn was jealous of Mad Mardigan and convinced Charisma that he was cheating on her. In a fit of jealous rage, she openly accused Mad Mardigan of revealing court secrets to her, and thus he was dishonored and stripped of his armor and knighthood. Now, I don't know if he actually told her anything or not, but I do have to imagine that's where the, and I'm the king of Kashmir line came from Mad Mardigan. Um, but from, from there, Mad Mardigan spent most of his time in taverns and other such places while Bab Morda expanded her borders and crushed anyone who got in the way. The Knights of Galadorn took up arms to repel her at Land's End, and his friend Eric gave him one more chance to regain his honor by joining them in battle. And Mad Mardigan agreed, but then he deserted the battle. As punishment for the desertion, Mad Mardigan was hung in a crow's cage to die in thirst, as you mentioned. As Eric is wont to point out, Mad Mardigan is no crusader, and he serves no one. Eric also tells Willow that Mad Mardigan will not help him, and I assume that is based on Mad Mardigan having deserted before. As to why Eric calls him a thief, I can only guess that Mad Mardigan was paid to fight against Mad Morda uh, and the Nakmar soldiers and, and essentially stole the money when he deserted without fulfilling his vow. Uh, but I, I cannot verify this. H however, knowing what I do know gives Mad Mardigan a very nice story arc, I think. When Mad Mardigan says to Eric that he serves the Nelwyn now, you could see that Eric wondered if it was real. 
I believe that when Eric and what was left of the Knights of Galador finished off the Narkma army at Tirazlin, revealing that they were the four Shalindria was talking about being there to help Willow and Alora Dannon, that Eric felt that as though Mad Mardigan had redeemed himself by not deserting Willow and standing up against Bab Morda. You'll notice Eric doesn't question Mad Mardigan again, and it would seem that they have rekindled their brotherhood in arms. What's more is that when Mad Mardigan takes up that sacred golden armor and sword at Tirazlin, much like the golden armor of the Galadornian knights, he is reclaiming what was taken from him back in Galadorn and, and combined with his deeds has regained his honor in his own sight. I think that smile on his face when he saw the armor was because it must have seemed like a sign from the gods. I personally like that story a lot more uh, with the bit that you talked about with Sorcia and the stuff I dug up on Bad Mardigan. Uh, but what did you think about all that does it affect how you see the film oh definitely i mean this is a really great backstory and it saddens me that they cut all of this out of the film you start mad mardigan in this really cool place where he's hung in a cage to die but it leads you to a question that's never answered why did he end up like that at the same time the movie hints clearly that mad mardigan had a more noble background in his past at one time i mean he wasn't always a rogue most of what we know about mad mardigan in the film is through the character of eric and even there i never felt like it was a complete picture I feel like we needed at least some of that backstory to get a fuller picture of Mad Mardigan. The past with the knightly background and the tragic romance, I mean, adds a lot to him, or would have if any of it had been mentioned. <laughs> now, it might be possible that Lucas had a sequel in mind where he wanted to develop that, um, but as it is, I feel like we get a very surface view of a potentially very interesting character, and I was just left wanting to know more than what we ultimately got. As for the character arc, it's clear that it's a redemption arc for uh, Mad Mardigan. The interesting thing is that Elora manages to bring out the best in the people around her just by being who she is. I mean, Mad Mardigan had been a nobleman and an aspiring knight who lost his way, but Willow and Laura are able to reach Mad Mardigan and find his better nature, inspiring him to be the hero he always should have been. This is the story of a warrior who lost himself and about how he finds himself again through Willow's friendship and the positive influence of a small child. If we'd just gotten some of those details in the movie, I feel like Mad Mardigan would have been much better served as a character. I, I have to agree with that. Uh, I, I would take it one step further and add that the movie itself, like with the Sorsha and her father stuff, would have been better with Mad Mardigan's and Eric's past in the film. Sure, it would have been longer, maybe even 30 or 40 minutes longer. But I think that a two-hour, 36 to 46-minute edition would have made a great director's cut or something and would have probably done pretty well on the home video market. But I believe you had some more to add as far as George Lucas's influences on the Willow story, didn't you, Steve? Yeah, but first I'm just going to say that um, a long director's cut didn't exactly hurt Lord of the Rings, so one for Willow would have helped. <laughs> yep. Anyway, um, there, there's, uh, to answer your question, though, uh, there's one other influence that loomed large on George Lucas. Uh, that person is Professor Joseph Campbell, who was a scholar in comparative mythology and comparative religion from Sarah Lawrence College. Uh, Campbell specialized in the study of mythic narrative, which he would eventually define as the hero's journey. Eventually, Campbell's ideas on the hero's journey would be published in 1949 as The Hero with a Thousand Faces. The idea behind that title, of course, is that archetypal hero patterns come back over and over again, with different characters repeating the same character roles throughout fiction and mythology. This idea would be known as the monomyth. Many of Campbell's ideas were influenced by contemporary artists and authors of his time, as well as psychology theorists like Carl Jung, uh, Sigmund Freud, and Abraham Maslow. Uh, Campbell had a huge impact on the work of George Lucas, who considered him a mentor and a friend. The formula for both Willow and Star Wars is laid out in Professor Campbell's book with the hero with a thousand faces. Campbell describes the hero's journey as a series of specific encounters and obstacles. Uh, both Luke and Willow follow these steps as the heroes of their story. Um, this includes the call to adventure, uh, the refusal of the call, um, supernatural aid, uh, crossing of the first threshold, the belly of the whale, um, initiation, the refusal to return, the magic flight, the rescue from without, the crossing of the return threshold, the masters of two worlds, and then the freedom to live. Uh, Willow finds the call to adventure in the form of Alora. He refuses to take care of her at first, but he ends up doing it anyway. The High Aldwin gives him aid in the form of the acorns, which they in turn whatever they touch the stone. Willow crosses over the threshold by way of the Daikini crossroads. He is chased by Sorsha's troops, initiated by Finn Rizal. Uh, He's captured by Sorsha and then has his magic flight to Tira's Lean. He's rescued by Eric's troops and they attack uh, Nakmar. Uh, Willow passes the final test by saving Alora and causing Bab Morda to destroy herself. Um, at that point, he is master of both the uh, Daikini world 
uh, and the Nelwyn world. And at that point, he can continue return home there and back again. Um, but beyond that, the character types on Willow and Star Wars are very similar. Um, both have a main trio that includes the hero, the rogue with the heart of gold, and the princess. So in Willow, that's uh, Willow off good, uh, Mad Mardigan, and Sorsha. Although it should be said that Sorsha starts off as a villainous example of this. We have the advisor figure in the High Aldwin who plays the Obi-Wan role. Then Roselle is a mentor as well, but she's more like a Yoda who teaches the higher and deeper mysteries to the hero. Finally, we have the Brownies, Rule and Franjan, who are the R2 and 3PO of the movie. In their case, though, Lucas borrowed those roles from Akira Kurosawa in The Hidden Fortress. The idea there was to show the ground level perspective by using these two contrasting side characters. So pretty much every major character from A New Hope uh, has a Willow analog of some sort. This kind of casting is very much drawn in uh, Campbellian mythology with classic archetypal characters fulfilling their role in the hero's journey. Now, there are some connections that need a little bit more work to make them fit. Eric Thalbauer's friendship with Mad Mardigan is just as rocky as Han Solo's report with Lando Calrissian, and their home kingdom of Galadorn suffers a similar fate to Alderaan, destroyed by ba Morda's merciless army. Uh, Fenrizel, forced into hiding by the forces of darkness and representing Willow's largest evolution in the world of magic, is something of an amalgam of both an Obi-Wan and a Yoda. Uh, funny as it may seem, uh, Elora Dannon shares commonalities with the stolen Death Star plans. She is essentially a MacGuffin who is protected by the heroes as their last hope and feared by the villains as their one weakness. Wow. You know, I, I can totally see those connections. And, and the 12 mm -hmm. steps of the hero's journey as defined by Joseph Campbell are absolutely mm -hmm. and clearly there in both Willow and A New Hope. Mm -hmm. there, there is no denying that. Um, yeah. I also had not considered all of those Star Wars influences in the film, but but that is intriguing. I'm actually going to be watching Willow a little differently next time I see it. Um, mm -hmm. But I think I might have even one more Star Wars connection for you. Uh, well, this does not apply to all Daikinis. Uh, I do find it interesting that Alora Dannon is a Daikini. In Sanskrit, Daikini means sky dweller or sky dancer, or, or as Lucas and some poets might put it, skywalker. And it is the most sacred aspect of the feminine principle in Tibetan Buddhism, embodying both humanity and divinity in the feminine form. Again, considering that we're talking about George Lucas, it is not a surprise that Eastern philosophy and ideas would make their way into his fantasy tale. I wasn't aware of that significance, but this too makes sense. Willow really isn't the story of the hero or the chosen one, but of the man who raises the chosen one. Willow's story is about gaining the qualities of a hero by taking up the responsibilities of one. Elora Dannon is the true Skywalker of the movie, as you say, the one who has the heroic destiny ahead of her. In many ways, it's Elora who aspires to hero heroism in Willow. It's an interesting take on a classic tale. It certainly is, and one that I appreciate. But if we could, I'd like to get into one of the other influences on Willow you mentioned earlier, and that is the Lord of the Rings. Uh, but these influences are, in, in my personal opinion, loose references that really kind of fall apart upon any thorough examination. Uh, but I will go over some of these theories I have come across nonetheless, because some of these similarities are interesting. Uh, both the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbits start out with little folk who live simple agrarian lives far from the concerns and problems of the giants and the rest of the world. That commonality is actually pretty solid. One could say that the High Aldwin was a Gandalf figure. That same line of thought might even lump Finrizel in as a Gandalf figure as well. But I think both comparisons are reaching at best. Another one I read about was that Will Willow is a Frodo-like character, as both have to leave the comforts of their home and to return something from outside their little world to the world of the big, big folk. For Frodo, it was the Shire, and for Willow, it was the Nelwyn Valley. That one doesn't actually fit too bad, but I feel like you really have to be looking for this stuff to find some of the similarities. And when you consider that one of those things was a child of prophecy that would go up to destroy evil, and the other was the one ring born from pure evil and filled with the malice of the Dark Lord, they are obviously nothing alike. Um, Migosh, for at least a time, is like a Samwise in The Lord of the Rings, with the exception of Migosh and Willow were close from the start, and Frodo and Sam uh, relationship really kind of blossomed on the adventure itself. The other connection there would be that Willow uh, sent Migosh back home, and Frodo did send Sam back home. Uh, but if you pull on that thread, it will unravel. Um, 
One scene seems to be a direct homage to a scene in the Fellowship of the Ring where Frodo, Sam, Mary, and Pippin hide from the ring wraith and decide to stay off the main roads and stick to the woods instead. In Willow, we see Bonkar, Brogokut, Migosh, Willow, Alora, and those two other soldier guys behind the brush from uh, hiding from Sasha and the soldiers of Nakmar and deciding also to stick to the woods. Uh, the inn tavern that, that Willow runs into Mad Mardigan again at and where Sasha and her forces meet up with the party again is kind of like the Prancing Pony in that the, in that at the Prancing Pony, uh, the ring race caught up with the hobbits. Uh, and while they had met him before, they also run into Mad Mardigan there, like how the hobbits ran into Aragorn at the Prancing Pony. Those are some interesting points with some good connections, but let me throw in a few ideas. I think that once Lucas realized he wasn't going to get the rights of The Hobbit, he decided to do his own takes on classic Tolkien-esque elements and character types. Some of those are subversions and twists on Tolkien-style characters. Willow has some points in common with Bilbo Baggins, uh, though the way they get there and back again is quite different. Making Willow a father or taking care of a child of prophecy changes him noticeably. Indeed, it changes his whole story in many ways. You have the High Aldwin, who dispenses wisdom much like Gandalf does, but he's also someone who doesn't know nearly as much as he pretends to. He just uses a bit of mysticism and sleight of hand to keep people like Burglecott in line. Uh, while Finn Rizal is a true sorceress. I see Mad Mardigan as a deconstruction of Aragorn. Um, he's inserted into that role, but he lacks Aragorn's nobility. Uh, Sorcia is a little reminiscent of Eowyn, the princess of Rohan turned a warrior woman. But here she starts off as the evil princess who works with a big bad. Now, uh, clearly some of these changes and twists might have been done in part for legal reasons. Uh, Lucas didn't want to run into trouble with the Tolkien estate, obviously. But I think he also saw an opportunity to make his own spin on the basic formula of The Hobbit, twisting the classic archetypes to suit the Lucas approach quite a bit more. And I think some of it also was designed to capture the Star Wars formula in a fantasy setting, which is why you get the Aragorn figure portrayed as more of a Han Solo type. It seems like Willow largely falls somewhere between Star Wars and Tolkien. But let's get into the one character who that isn't a subversion. I, I don't know about you, but the Fairy Queen reminded me a lot of Lady Galadriel. Though, unlike the others I've talked about, she's played largely straight. Uh, Mike, did you want to talk about her? I do, Steve. Uh, but first, I like what you did there with the there and back again. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, it would seem that we came to the same conclusion there uh, about the two. Shalindria is the queen of the fairies and the brownies of the fairy forest where she lives. While it's not exactly the same, Galadriel was the queen of the elves and the lady of the woods of Lothlorien. Shalindria's nickname was the lolly late maiden of the forest. So fairies for one and elves for the other, but both were powerful queens of the forest. This next connection between them seems to be a name only, though. Galadriel gives Frodo the file of Galadriel, which both he and Sam used later against Shelob. Shalindria gives Willow her wand, which he does use later, but it's intended for Finn Rizal. So really, the only common thread there is that both Frodo and Willow are given a magic item. This is again an instance where the changes were intentionally done to avoid similarities, but the Galadriel influence is unmistakable to me. They're both beautiful and powerful elf queens who help give the hero the tools he needs for his journey, as we've mentioned. Both of them rule over their respective woods, and both of them have established relationships with the great mages of their settings, uh, Gandalf and Fismarazel, respectively. Cherlindria does do one other thing, which is that she seeds the, sends the brownies to help on uh, Willow's quest. But given that the brownies are basically goofy comic sidekicks, I don't know how much help that actually is. Um, as an aside, though, I'll add that the brownies seem like a cross between Merry and Pippin and 3PO and R2 uh, in terms of role, which is on brand for George Lucas. I, I will say that at least Frangine was helpful. <laughs> he at least knew where they were going. Rule was really useless one. as He, he was more interested in being charged than actually doing any leading <laughs> and constantly depended on Frangine to tell him what to do. Uh, but there are a few more similarities in Willow to the Lord of the Rings I want to talk about as well. Uh, Tira's lean has a, has a lot in common with Minas Tirith, I think. Uh, consider mm -hmm. that out of all the places in Middle-earth, Gandalf went to the libraries of Minas Tirith to learn about the history of the ring and many other things. I will get into this later, but Tirislein was also a place of knowledge and learning. Uh, plus, Tirislein was the oldest and most prestigious of the Daikini kingdoms, just as Minas Tirith was for the man mankind in the southern kingdom of Gondor. If you can follow me there, then Mad Mardigan can be seen as a pseudo-Aragorn character, as they are both seemingly shady characters at first, but are ultimately destined to rule the greatest kingdom of men. Last but not least is Alora Danon's birthmark. 
Um, in the movie, it is something similar, but not quite like the Quenya Tangwar letter Roman, which looks kind of like a Y, and it has a dot on the top indicating that it would include the the, the vowel I in it. Uh, but this is not exact, and there should be three diagonal lines in it, not just two. Honestly, with the exception of the dot indicating that an I follows the letter, it looks more like the dwarven uh, rune for the letter G, uh, which is a diagonal line with three diagonal branches coming off of it on the right side. But again, it is only close and, and neither are like the birthmark. So uh, I, at best, they, they were possible inspirations, but there are actual languages uh, that look and sound like Tolkien's languages. So, I mean, the influence really could have come from anywhere. Yeah, that's a good catch and probably one I wouldn't have made myself. Um, you're probably on point with the Minas Tirith connection, and I dig that idea. But I'd like to build on that point for a moment. I'd argue that Tira's lean is another subverted fantasy trope that Lucas plays with in this movie. You always have these fantasy tales where the adventurers are trying to get to the great city or the library where the magic that can destroy the Dark Lord can be found. In the case of Tira's lean, the adventurers arrive at the fortress only to find that the place is in ruins, presumably destroyed by Bab Morda. So after building up the hope that the secret to stopping the evil queen is in Tirazlin, it turns out that the city and their hope lie in ashes. That was a pretty clever move. I'll, I'll also throw out another thing. Uh, keep in mind that in The Hobbit, the company has to stop at Rivendell to get the way into the Misty Mountain after consulting with Elrond. Uh, Elrond is the only one who can read the runes on the dwarven map. So while Minas Tirith is a good thought, and it may well have been on Lucas's mind, he may also have been thinking about Revendell as well. They do have similar narrative roles in their respective adventures in some respects. I could certainly see how both play a similar narrative role in the story for sure. I think I think the difference might be that one uses uh, an actual library and the other uses a walking library in the form of Elrond. <laughs> <laughs> but but I actually found some other things that Lucas seems to have clearly drawn on. In Celtic mythology, the willow tree is sacred and beloved. It is associated with the triple goddess. The tree was known for its healing properties and was thought to protect rather than attack. In ancient Celtic folklore, the gray willow is known as the tree of enchantment, and the willow is a symbol of the old ways of enchantment and sorcery. Elora's last name, Danon, is a clear reference to the Tua de Danon, or the people of the goddess Danu, uh, the godlike ancestors of Ireland whose descendants survived as the fairy folk. In fact, while Tua just means people, you'll note that both the High Alden and Willow use that word as a magic word in their spells. Uh, the kingdom of Tirislene seems to be a nod to Tiranog, uh, the Irish land of youth and beauty where the Tua de Danon lived. Consider that many skilled sorcerers studied in the library of Tirislene Castle, including the enchantresses Finrizel and Bab Morda, who also trained under, under the powerful Shalindria. The Tua de Danon had various kings and queens of the fairy folk, and Shalindria certainly seems to fit the mold of the fairy queens, especially with her connection to the oak tree. An oak and branch as a magical wand has serious significance in many cultures, but it is especially sacred in Celtic folklore, as the oak tree is one of the three most sacred trees, along with the ash and hawthorn. The Celts believed that trees were not just plants, but rather living beings. They were more than just a source of food, fuel, and building materials. Trees were also seen as a source of strength, wisdom, balance, and harmony. Trees were also a common meeting place for druids. And speaking of druids and oak trees, you'll note that the High Aldwin gave Willow three acorns. The acorn is a symbol of strength and power, but also because an oak tree must be fully mature before it makes acorns, it is also considered the symbol of the patience needed to attain goals over long periods of time. And that way it also represents perseverance and hard work. Huh. See, I had not actually considered the Celtic mythology angle when looking at this movie, so I have to give props for being able to connect the significance of Celtic myth into Lucas crea Lucas's creative choices with this film. I'd forgotten that trees and plants connect to elements of Celtic myth as well, <laughs> and considering I write White Druid, I can't believe I forgot that. Um, I should have remembered. I should have remembered Alora's connection to the Tua de Danan, as it makes sense that she's a child of the divine since she's the chosen one. Also, the idea of the acorn suddenly makes a lot of sense in the context of this film. I just thought it was a neat little MacGuffin uh, to use in the film, but Lucas was clearly thinking in mythic terms more than I had expected. As for Shalindria, I'd suggest looking back to our fairies and folklore episode for that. Um, we talk a little bit there about different elves and fairy queens, and I think there might be some connections to be made with those legends. But I also feel like Shalindria also connects to the Lady of the Lake, 
who raises the sword Excalibur from the water and offers it to Arthur. Um, Sherlindria offers Willow the Wand, which, like Excalibur, is a powerful weapon that offers hope against the darkness. Uh, also, in some versions of Arthurian legend, the Lady of the Lake is a fairy queen and the adopted mother of Lancelot. Uh, Lucas is drawn occasionally on Arthurian references, such as with Luke Skywalker. So this is something I could see him having done intentionally. I I really like that Arthurian connection with Sherlindria and the Lady of the Lake. That That is a very nice parallel there. Um, however, I think that Lucas went even deeper than that. Uh, the ancient Greek philosopher Pythagoras postulated that the meaning behind numbers was deeply significant, and the number three especially was considered as the perfect number, the number of harmony, wisdom, and understanding. It was also the number of the three aspects of time, past, present, and future, the three aspects of life, birth, life, and death, and the three aspects of the story with the beginning, the middle, and the end. It was the number of the divine. Three is often the magic number in fairy tales, the number of tasks to do or riddles to answer, or even the number of wishes granted. Number three is the number of good fortune, and more importantly, it is the number of magic. In Norse culture, the symbol of three interlocking triangles is called a valknut, which means not of the slain. Because of Odin's association with the slain in battle and whether or not they enter Valhalla, this symbol is associated with him and wearing the symbol in battle would protect those who died in Odin's name. In Wicca, the number three is associated with the triple moon and their triple goddess, as well as her three aspects, which are the maiden, the mother, and the crone. Interesting that you mentioned the triple goddess. Uh, one of her aspects is the Morrigan, who is very likely a major influence on Morgan Le Fay, another Arthurian fairy queen. It seems like the Celtic myth angle and the Arthurian angle is a well that this movie keeps going back to. But I think you had more uh, to add on the idea of three, Mike? I, I, I do, but a good call on the Morrigan. Actually, after you brought up the Arthurian connection before, I, I was hoping you would catch that. Uh, but yes, I, I do have more on the number three. Uh, the number three is all over the Bible and other religions and beliefs as well. Even in modern times, we use the term third times the charm. Speaking of which, I'd like to break down a series of scenes. Uh, you'll notice that when Finn Rizal was in the form of the possum the, and, and first asked Willow to change her into a human form, he couldn't do it. He didn't even know the words of the spell, but Raziel instructed him on what to do. As a quick side note, uh, in many cultures, possums are viewed as teachers because they are great problem solvers. And you'll note that while in, the, in that form, Raziel taught Willow the spell. The first time he actually attempted the spell, it was too painful and he stopped, leaving Finrazel a crow. Crows are associated with divination, omens, and are even messengers of the gods in some cases. So it is not an accident that Finrazel led the, led the way for the party and warned them of danger in her crow form. The second time Willow attempts the spell, he is distracted by the Nakmar army and Raziel ends up, ends up a mountain goat. Mountain goats are symbols of going where others cannot and wouldn't and would not for obvious reasons. Uh, but by extension, they are also symbols of going beyond the ordinary and the places no one would dare, like the cursed and crumbling Tirasleen with its populace encased in crystal. I think here Raziel uh, symbolized getting up, getting to where they needed to go despite the hardship, and that idea is hit upon again in the next form she takes. A while back when I started examining this process, I tied it to the phrase, the third time's a charm, relating to the importance of the number three. We'll keep that keep in mind that Willow finally succeeds in changing Fenrisiel in his third attempt. And I just want to say one more thing before I get back into the whole magic numbers thing. Raziel changes from a mountain goat to an ostrich, another symbol of resistance through hardship and strength. Then she turns into a peacock, a symbol of rebirth, renewal, and royalty, which I assume is prophetic about Alora Dannon. Next, she turns into a tortoise, which is a symbol of the earth and water, wisdom and knowledge, but again with the repeating theme of rebirth as well. Lastly, she assumes the form of a tiger. The tiger symbolizes courage, power, strength, bravery, military prowess, and all these things were in desperate need at the moment, at that moment, and, and courage was directly claimed by Willow before he beat the drum. But considering the prophecy about Alora Dannon, I found this bit interesting. In Chinese culture, the tiger is yin or feminine energy. So that has to be about Laura Dannon, I figure. Uh, Bab Morda was was destroyed indirectly by Alora Dannon. And all of this leads me to believe that her part in all of that symbolism about rebirth and renewal is what's coming once Alora Dannon is old enough to be queen herself. Her part will be rebuilding the world that Bab Morda almost destroyed. 
It was no accident that the High Aldwin gave Willow three acorns. But if you consider that Willow also received a lock of hair from his wife for luck and Shalindria's wand, then you'll note that he received five magical items. And that number is significant, too, in magic. The number five is associated with protection, which is why a pentagram has five points and why Willow received five magical items. But the Celts specifically have a thing called the fivefold, which is four rings connected by a central ring. The symbol is arranged in such a way that without the central ring, the outer rings would become completely separate and would fall away from each other. The central ring or fifth ring often represents the higher power and ties them all together. To the Celts, the fivefold represents God as the center ring, spirituality, heaven and the universe and the passage of time. With the symbol of fivefold, Celtic people showed that they valued balance, spirituality, and had a respect for nature and the higher power it represents. To others across Europe, fivefold represents the universe as the central ring and the four elements of earth, air, fire, and water, or, or even the four seasons. I do not personally believe that these numbers are happenstance, and I think Lucas used them on purpose to denote a kind of natural magic. Even uh, the Wand of Shalindria denotes that, being an oak and branch. Compare that to Bab Morda's sorcery and you see a kind of battle of magic ideologies taking place as well. Uh, but <laughs> what do you think of all that incessant rambling, Steve? <laughs> you, you bring up a lot of really cool stuff that I wish was actually mentioned in the movie. I mean, the idea of magic numbers does come back quite a bit in this movie, and that's a good breakdown of how numerology works in Willow. The idea of Lorna Dannon representing the divine feminine is an interesting idea too, and I think you're onto something with that. Um, I just feel like the movie just doesn't show us enough. If these philosophies you outlined had actually been expounded on by the characters in the film, you could have shown some truly deep themes and a more compelling conflict between Bab Morda and Ben Rizal. To bring it back to Star Wars, one of the reasons the Jedi and the Sith are so interesting is because they have clear and dis distinct philosophical differences, and we see it shown directly in the story. And like the Force, um, Willow's magic derives from life itself. So if that is what Lucas was thinking with this, and he may well have been, it's a shame that we don't see the people like the High Aldwin or Finn Rizal delve more into the inner workings of that belief system. But the more you explain about the connections to Celtic myth and the archetypal patterns, I keep coming back to one point. I'm noticing that the magic presented in Willow really asks you to do the work of the movie to make any sense of it. And that mainly that means looking into Lucas's mythic influences, because when you try to look at the movie on a purely surface level, it seems like magic in Willow just stuffs, does stuff when it needs to. And the basics are not really explained that well, even if it's not, that's not really the case. Um, while you show that there is a thought process behind it all, uh, there aren't any clear rules that are laid out in terms of the, of the dialogue in the story world. If you're not looking at it from a Campbellian perspective, it comes across as magic just working to serve a plot purpose, whatever it's needed to do. It makes a lot more sense if you're trying to do a deep dive into Lucas's influence and unpack the mysticism and the archetypal elements that Lucas used to tell the story. The way magic is executed in Willow just isn't clear to the audience without them doing the work of the movie, and that's kind of unfortunate. You know, I, I fully see what you're saying there. And I, I, as I touched on a bit earlier, I too would have preferred to see this stuff in the movie we're talking about in the film, and it definitely would have improved the quality of the movie. We are in 100% agreement there. At the same time, from a purely selfish perspective... <laughs> If movies did all the work like they're supposed to, then what would we be talking about on ORP? <laughs> mm -hmm. Seriously, though, let, let, let's get into the pre-production pre stage of the film. Just throw me a bone here is all I ask. <laughs> but sure, um, let's move on. Um, the pre-production on Willow uh, began in late uh, 1986. Uh, various major film studios turned down the chance to distribute and co-finance it with Lucasfilm because they believed the fantasy genre was unsuccessful. And this was largely due to films like uh, 1981's Dragon Slayer, 1983's Crawl, 1985's Legend, and 1986's Labyrinth. To be fair, though, all of those movies became cult classics, even if they weren't huge money makers. And honestly, some of those are personal favorites of mine, so I take offense to that. Anyway, um, Lucas took it to MGM, which was headed by Alan Ladd Jr. Ladd and Lucas shared a relationship as far back as the mid-70s, uh, when Ladd running 20th Century Fox greenlit uh, Lucas's idea for Star Wars. However, in 1986, MGM was facing financial troubles and a major element in investment in a fantasy film was perceived as a risk. Ladd advanced half of the $35 billion budget in return for theatrical and television rights, leaving Lucasfilm with home video and paid television rights to offer an exchange for the other half. 
Um, RCA Columbia Pictures Home Video paid $15 million to Lucas in exchange for the video rights. Wow. They they really didn't leave themselves much to actually make money from on the film. Uh, I, I have to believe that this was, I mean, at least in part, a, a passion project and not just about the money because of that. Uh, but but what do you say we get into the casting now, Steve? Sure. Uh, we can totally do that, Mike. Um, according to Warwick Davis, the film had uh, the largest ever casting call for little people at the time. Keep in mind that this was over a decade before Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings. Um, in any case, uh, between uh, 225 and 240 actors were hired for the film. Warwick Davis's future father-in-law, Peter Burroughs, and uh, his wife, uh, Samantha Davis, appear as uh, Nelwyn Benelagers. Kenny Baker of R2-D2 fame played a Nelwyn musician, as did his longtime part uh, comedy partner, Jack Purvis. David J. Steinberg played Migosh. Um, Mark Northover was Burglecut. Phil uh, Fondacaro played uh, Von Karm, and uh, Julie Peters played uh, Kaya of Good. It's unconfirmed that Peter Dinklage appeared in the movie as one of the Nelwins and is believed to be the Nelwyn dressed in pink who's seen with his arms crossed during uh, Willow's disappearing pig trick early in the movie as the unknown actor bears a resemblance to Peter Dinklage. Uh, Peter Dinklage was 17 when the movie was in production. Still, if it was him, this foreshadows his role on Game of Thrones by decades as well. But um, back to Warwick Davis, who was also 17 when he played Willow. Warwick Davis is only 12 years older than Don uh, Downing, who plays his daughter, and only 10 years older than Mark Vandebrake, who plays his son. During the production of Return of the Jedi in 1982, Lucas uh, approached Warwick Davis, who was portraying Wicked the Ewok, about playing Willow of, of Good. In fact, uh, George Lucas specifically wrote Willow for Warwick Davis after meeting on that set. But it would not be until 1987 that Davis was officially cast in the role. In George Lucas's words, he, quote, Thought it would be great to use a little person in a lead role. A lot of my movies are about a little guy against the system, and this was just a more literal interpretation of that idea, unquote. It echoes some of Tolkien's themes and his reasoning behind his use of hobbits. Um, in the words of Galadriel, even the smallest person can change the course of the future. It seems that Lucas decided on Nelwins for similar reasons, and it works for this film. But why don't we get into the rest of the cast, Mike? Sure thing, Steve, but I just have to say, apparently no one's get busy real young, only 10 years apart for that first kid there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bell Kilmer played Mad Mardigan, but John Cusack actually tested for the role. Uh, Mad Mardigan would have been a much different character had that been the case, but, but Cusack actually considers not getting that role as his greatest disappointment. Uh, Joanne Wally played Sorsha, and while they later divorced, Kilmer and Wally actually mar got married after the film, so some of that chemistry between, between them on set was real. Uh, Kate and Ruth Greenfield uh, and Rebecca Bierman played the infant Laura Dannon, except for when the movie was shot in New Zealand. In New Zealand, Laura Dannon was played by Isla Brentwood, Laura Hopkirk, and Gina Nelson. And yes, if you're counting, six different babies played Laura. That's because production ran so slowly that the babies outgrew the props and the baby carrier that Willow had on his back, so they needed a new baby quickly. The second assistant director, Jerry Toomey, recommended his newborn niece, Rebecca Bierman, uh, although she was never actually credited. The six-month-old twins playing Alora Dannon were too young to have full a full head of hair. Uh, so they actually wear a wig. Uh, but it was applied using syrup as a normal wig adhesive would have been too harsh for the baby's skin. A 13-pound animatronic baby capable of moving its head and opening its mouth was used for the action scenes. Uh, this baby weighed more than the actual baby, obviously. And, and a more flexible prop baby was used in the scenes where Willow falls with her. Uh, but I believe you had some interesting things to say about Gene Marsh and playing Bab Morda, don't you, Steve? I do, as it happens. Uh, Gene Marsh is one of those classic British actresses who's had a long and distinguished career. Uh, she's appeared in such things as the original Twilight Zone, uh, the Saint TV series, um, Alfred Hitchcock's film Frenzy, and even Cleopatra. However, she's probably best known um, associated with Doctor Who. During the William Hartnell era, Gene uh, Marsh played Sarah Kingdom, who was a companion of the first Doctor in a serial called The Dalek's Master Plan. Sarah Kingdom occupies a pretty nebulous space among companions in that she didn't accompany the Doctor as a full companion regularly but she's sometimes listed among the companions, depending on who you ask. Anyway, uh, Jean Marsh played the evil queen Bab Morda, and it was not the first time that she had played such a role. 
Marsha played a similar character as Mombi, a.k.a. the Wicked Witch of the North, in 1985's Return to Oz. But she'd also returned to Doctor Who in uh, 1989's Battlefield as Morgane the Sun Killer, Dominator of the Thirteen Worlds, and Battle Queen of the Serax. Um, I've seen Battlefield, and it is very much a sci-fi take on Arthurian legend. Um, the Seventh Doctor's run is pretty solid, and I would recommend that episode. Marsha's Morgane is very much the evil sorceress character you'd expect her to be, and, and Marsh does a good job in that episode. But anyway, by the time that she took over the, the role of Bab Morda, Jean Marsh had some strong experience in playing those kinds of characters, and it shows. She was certainly convincing playing Bab Morda. I mean, the makeup helped, but at no point did I not do her as a cruel and evil sorceress because she is just that good. Uh, Gavin O'Herlihy uh, played Eric Thawbear, uh, otherwise known as Lana Lang's alcoholic jerk of an ex-boyfriend and Clark, Clark Kent's high school rival in 1983 Superman 3. <laughs> There's vodka in it now, buddy. But seriously, while that is my go-to thought for O'Herlihy, uh, he actually did well in this movie, I thought. A totally different character. Uh, Patricia Hayes plays Finn Rizel, and Billy Barty was the High Aldwin in the Nowen Village. Uh, Pat Roach played G General Kale. Uh, but there's a funny story behind the name. Uh, Lucas named the character General Kale after film critic Pauline Kale, a, and a fact that was not lost on Kale in her printed review of the film. She referred to General Kale as an homage to moi. Similarly, the two-headed dragon was called Ebersisk after film critics Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert. Uh, but with the casting stuff out of the way, what can you tell us about the locations used for filming Willow, Steve? I can add a few things, uh, but before I do, I'll just add that Pat Roach is a Lucas regular. He was the hulking German mechanic that fights Indiana Jones in the airplane flight in Raiders, and he was the Thugi uh, chief guard in Temple of Doom. In fact, Roach has the distinction of being the only actor to appear in all three of the original three indie films, aside from Harrison Ford. So it's no surprise that he ended up getting a role in Willow as well. Um, but let's go ahead and talk about locations. Um, George Lucas initially envisioned to do Willow in a similar way uh, to how he had done Return of the Jedi. So he wanted to do studio scenes at Elstree Studios and then film uh, other locations in Northern California. However, what ended up happening is that interior footage took place at Elstree Studios while location shooting uh, took place in Wales and New Zealand. Tongariro National Park in New Zealand was chosen to house uh, Bab Morda's castle. What I find hilarious about this is that it's another Lord of the Rings connection. I mean, Lord of the Rings was filmed entirely in New Zealand. So the fact that Willow was also filmed there uh, is fascinating to me. There's just something about New Zealand that makes it really work for fantasy films for some reason. <laughs> However, um, North California was not abandoned entirely. Some exteriors were done around Skywalker Ranch and on location at Bernie Falls near Mount Shasta. Now, the next bit is interesting. The Chinese government refused George Lucas the chance for a brief location shoot in South China. So Lucas sent a group of photographers to South China to photograph the specific scenery he wanted, and then he just used the photos for background blue screen footage. <laughs> I have to say that is a clever way of working around a problem. But why don't we get into the production side of things, Mike? I will, but I have to. I have to mention this. I, I have been to the Redwood Forest that Return of the Jedi was filmed in, and I have been all over Bernie Falls where they filmed Willow at. I can't say that I've been to a whole lot of filming locations very often, so I thought that was cool. Uh, but on to production. Principal photography began April 2nd, 1987 and ended in the following October. Lucas Industrial Light and Magic created the visual effects sequences. The script called for Willow to restore Finn Rizal from a goat to her original human form. Willow recites what he thinks is the appropriate spell, but turns the goat into an ostrich, a peacock, a tortoise, and finally a tiger before returning Rizal to her human body. ILM supervisor Dennis Buren considered using stop-motion animation for the scene. He also explained that another traditional and practical way in the, late in the late 1980s to execute this sequence would have been through the use of an optical dissolve with cutaways at various stages. Dennis Murin found both stop motion and optical effects to be technically challenging and decided that the transformation scene would be a perfect opportunity for ILM to create advances with digital morphing technology. 
As such, Willow is the first feature film to use the morphing process developed by Industrial Light and Magic. Dennis Murin proposed filming each animal and the actress doubling for Patricia Hayes and then feeding the images into a computer program developed by Doug Smythe. The program would then create a smooth transition from one stage to another before outputting the result back onto the film. Smythe began development of the necessary software in September of 1987. By March 1988, the impressive result Murin and fellow designer David Allen uh, from Young Sherlock Holmes and Ghostbusters 2 achieved would represent a breakthrough for CGI. The techniques developed for the sequence were later utilized by ILM for Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, and Star Trek 6, The Undiscovered Country. Uh, the Devil Dogs were actually just Rottweilers and rubber masks and suits. Hmm. Hmm. Willow seems to occupy that middle space between the era of Ray Harryhausen films and the beginning of CGI. And it should be said that George Lucas was one of the major architects of that shift. There's a lot of this movie that feels practical, even though there are parts that aren't, like the morphing effects. Of course, Lucas would dive hard into CGI after this, particularly in the Star Wars prequels. But at this point, he wasn't reliant on it, using it for effects that would have been difficult to accomplish without the technology to make it happen. And because of that, I think Willow finds the right balance between digital and practical in a way that Lucas's later movies don't pull off so well. Well said. You know, I, I think the key to really great special effects lies somewhere between practical VFX and CGI. I think CGI in general should be an enhancement rather than, you know, an actual effect if possible. Uh, but let me move on to the more spontaneous parts of production. Uh, there were some things that made it into the film that were not necessarily planned. For instance, Val Kilmer actually ad-libbed most of his dialogue and even improvised some scenes. Uh, a great example of this was when Mad Martigan picked up Migos with joy and cried out, I feel better, after being released from the crow's cage. And that was entirely Val Kilmer's idea. Uh, but speaking of the crow's cage, as Val Kilmer was getting out of the cage between takes, the chain holding it up snapped and the cage came right down on his foot. This obviously hurt and, and actually resulted in a limp that made it into the film during the scene where Mad Martigan and Willow arrive in the village on the edge of the lake where Finn Rizal's island was. You can usually get a sense of where Val Kilmer ad-libbed things because Mad Martigan feels like such a George Lucas character when he's scripted. Note that I don't mean that in a bad way at all. Uh, Mad Martigan just has that Han Solo flavor in the dialogue. So when Kilmer improvises, I think Mad Martigan actually is a bit more interesting because he moves away from that and shows a bit more personality. Um, it's a shame that Kilmer got uh, injured in the middle of that, but he was a trooper and he made it work for the movie. As an aside, I want to throw something past you, Mike. Um, we talked in the Indiana Jones episode about how stunt ideas were abandoned only to be used in later sequels. We saw this happen in Temple of Doom with a minecart chase, for example. In Willow, there are a couple of action scenes that feel like they could have come out of an indie film. Firstly, there's the wagon chase where uh, Mad Mardigan and Willow are trying to get out after Mar Mad Mardigan's disguise gets exposed. You get a lot of indie-style moments in, in the chase sequence. But there's also the snow chase where Mad Mardigan and Willow are sledding downhill on a shield. Is it just me? It doesn't feel like these chases might have been unused ideas left over from the indie films. Actually... Now that you mention it, those scenes do have a very Indiana Jones feel to them, particularly but not exclusively the wagon chase. Uh, that fight that Mad Morgan and the soldiers had as they moved along seems to be straight out of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Also, as a quick side note, in the scene where Mad Martigan and Willow are riding that shield down the snowy mountain and you see Willow's eyes go all wide with fear a couple of times, well, that wasn't acting. <laughs> that was Warwick Davis actually afraid as they slid down that mountain. And speaking of such scenes, whether this next scene was an accident is apparently debated. Uh, but I tend to want to go with Warwick Davis over an unnamed source. But but here it is. Uh, the scene where the baby puked on Burgle Cut was not written into the script, according to one source. Uh, Willow walked with a limp, which gave Rebecca motion sickness uh, when she was lifted up. So she threw up in his face, and it was so funny they kept it in the film. Uh, however, this is contradicted by Warwick Davis in his 2001 DVD documentary saying that the vomit on screen is fake. And at the time, the, the Davis found the scene to be over the top. But after becoming a father himself, he realized, well, it was just kind of par for the course. Hmm. I'm inclined to think that Davis was probably right in that whole bit was scripted. The vomit looked fake enough for me to believe that's probably the case. But I can't see either way definitively. And I admit I could well be wrong on that. 
Anyway, uh, how did Willow end up doing when all is said and done? Not as well as hoped, but not bad in my opinion. In 1982, E.T. beat Star Wars Episode IV's record and became the highest grossing film of all time. By the end of E.T.'s theatrical run, it had grossed $619 million worldwide. My guess is that having the highest grossing movie of all time for five solid years and then losing it to E.T. was a bit of a rub to Lucas. I also personally believe that it was no coincidence that with George Lucas' previous record being a science fantasy story based on Joseph Campbell's hero uh, hero's journey from a hero with a thousand faces, that George Lucas would return to that tried and true formula with a more straight up fantasy in 1988's Willow. What he did not expect was for Willow to become competing with 1988's Crocodile Dundee 2, Big, and Rambo 3. Uh, for those of you who were not there in 1988, trust me when I say those three films offered serious competition. Willow was by no means a failure in the box office, however. Just because it didn't meet Lucas's desire to reclaim the throne of the highest grossing film of all time. Uh, consider that it cost $35 million to make Willow, and it made $137.6 million. If you ask me, oh, over $100 million take home is pretty good. I, I would personally view that as enough to pay the bills, some personal expenses, get a few things for myself, and, and maybe even put some money away from a rainy day on top of being able to pay for the next movie. I was going to make. Uh, either way, Lucas did not get what he was hoping for as far as reclaiming his throne, and rather than continue the series as a movie franchise, Lucas opted to continue the story through a trilogy of books now known collectively as the Chronicles of the Shadow War, with a shared writer's credit with the famous X-Men writer Chris Claremont and George Lucas. They are Shadow Moon, Shadow Dawn, and Shadow Star, published in 1995, 1996, and 2000, respectively. But did you want to elaborate on those books a bit, Steve? I'm curious what the stories were about. As it happens, while I have read these books, it was ages ago, and I admit I don't remember them all that well, but I can describe what I can remember as well as things as I learned about the novels later. I do remember liking the first book, though tonally the series is quite different from the, from the film. As I recall, I think the idea was to do a Lord of the Rings to Willow's Hobbit, telling the story of Elora Dannon as a, as a young woman. Uh, for reasons I don't recall, Willow changes his name to Thorn Drumheller, probably due to restrictions placed by Lucasfilm. There are quite a few of them. Um, the only other characters from the film who appear are the Brownies, uh, Roll and Franz John. Mad Morgan and Sorsha are nowhere, and I'll get into why that is with the behind the scenes. According to Chris Claremont, uh, Lucas contacted Bantam Books about possibly doing a Willow book project. This was very probably an attempt by Lucasfilm to replicate the success of the early Star Wars expanded universe which took off with Timothy Zahn's uh, Thrawn trilogy of novels. Regardless, uh, Lucasfilm went to Bantam to look for a writer to do it, and Bantam put them in touch with Claremont. Claremont agreed to do it, and he spent three years of work in the late 90s putting together a trilogy, which became known as the Shadow War trilogy. George Lucas's own involvement in the books was limited, though he did meet with Claremont once. Uh, Lucas himself had been busy with the production of Star Wars The Phantom Menace, so he wasn't able to be very involved with the writing process. In fact, uh, Lucas had only provided Claremont an outline for the series. Chris Claremont spent one day with George Lucas to discuss his plans for Willow, most of which was recorded for Claremont's notes. I say mostly because Claremont didn't realize that a wire was unplugged and he missed about an hour or so of a day-long conversation about Willow. I'll be honest, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall for that meeting. Uh, in any case, um, Claremont built three years of writing largely on that recorded conversation with Lucas. The communications between Lucasfilm and Claremont ended up causing problems with the books. Initially, Claremont was told that he could only use Willow and Alora Donnan. Uh, later on, that was relaxed a little bit, and he was allowed to use the Brownies as well. That was pretty much it as far as Claremont knew. But by the time the first novel came out, uh, Lucasfilm apparently forgot that they told Claremont not to use characters like Mad Mardigan and Sorsha. And then they asked him why they weren't there. So with only a few weeks away from publication, Claremont had to put together a last-minute prologue to account for those characters. To be honest, that sounds like a nightmare situation to work in. The lack of consistency that you see with the characters is pretty much on Lucasfilm from what I can see. These books are generally disliked by fans of the film due to their bleak tone and the quick deaths of the certain characters from the film, which is the result of Lucasfilm's mandates. The prologue leads into a world-shaking cataclysm where Sorsha and Mad Mardigan are apparently killed. Uh, Laura is protected because Willow gives her a gift that imparts her with a portion of his magical power. 
Um, after the cataclysm, Willow goes into hiding for years, changes his identity, and becomes Thorn, where while a demonic entity called the Deceiver tries to pose as Willow. The story of the first book is about Elora coming of age and realizing who her true godfather is. That sets up a huge war between Elora and the Deceiver, which would be resolved in the last two books. Keep in mind that this is a hugely simplified synopsis and that the actual novels get a lot more complicated in practice. According to Claremont, the Shadow War novels earned their money and Bantam considered them successful in both hardback and paperback sales. So the books definitely had a fan base. Um, however, Lucas later admitted that he was so unhappy with how the books turned out that he disowned them. While there's a, a lot that I've forgotten, I personally didn't mind those books. And looking back at them, I still don't. I mean, they're not hugely groundbreaking or anything, but I remember them being solid fantasy books. To be fair, I, I can see why some people didn't like the tonal change from the film. I mean, I've sometimes reacted in a similar way when, you know, the series veers too far from the original tone of approach. I mean, just ask me about Final Fantasy. Um, at the same time, I get why the books were done that way. They wanted a big epic story in the vein of Lord of the Rings, and that meant the tone had to darken at least somewhat. Um, Claremont probably did the best anyone could have done with the inconsistent and baffling mandates uh, from Lucasfilm. But however you look at the Shadow War trilogy, I mean, this is the closest we'll probably get to Lucas's vision for the Willow universe. So it's worth at least trying out if you're curious about it and can find the novels. So Willow changed his name to Thorn and a demon mm -hmm. tried to possess him. That's not like Michael Myers at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, that that is interesting, and, and I'm honestly a little surprised that Lucas wanted a novel trilogy about the universe he had created and put any restrictions on who could be used and who couldn't at all. I mean, that is tying your own hands up. But then to have that so done so offhandedly that when Claremont turned in the scripts that they didn't even remember having made those rules is fucked up. Lucasfil Lucasfilm is fully to blame for any success loss on those books. I mean, if he wants to disown them, fine. But he better not blame Claremont for that. Agreed. This is in no way Claremont's fault. Uh, he fulfilled the side of the bargain. I think he honestly did the best he could with the material given to him under those conditions. I put a lot of the books under performance on the bizarre mandates and poor communication from Lucasfilm. That said, the books didn't do too badly by publication standards, so it's a success of a kind, much like Willow itself, come to think of it. So perhaps the books did perform uh, to reasonable expectations. But speaking of errors, I think there was something you wanted to point out in the film, Mike. Uh, yes, actually. Um, there is a continuity error that involves the magic acorns Willow was given by the High Aldwin. Um, during an interview with the Empire podcast, Warwick Davis explained that in, in a scene near the end of the film, he throws a second acorn and is inexplicably out of them after having used only two of the three magic acorns he had been given earlier in the film. Included in the Blu-ray release is the cut scene in which Willow uses an acorn, his second, in a boat during a storm to fight off a boy who had turned into a sea monster and accidentally turns the boat into stone. Davis says that his hair was wet in the next scene that, that did make it into the original version of the film, but the acorn is never referenced. Ron Howard actually commends anyone who is a big enough fan to have noticed that. <laughs> Sounds good. I do seem to remember that an acorn was miscounted when I watched the film, but I was never sure why. It didn't make a huge deal in the scheme of things, so I let it go. But for now, how about we get into how Willow has influenced other series, Mike? I'd love to. Uh, Xena Warrior Princess Cradle of Hope from 1995 bears a similar plot to Willow. In that episode, Xena and uh, Gabrielle uh, find a newborn baby in a basket on a river and they become the baby's protectors when they learn that the baby was prophesied to sit on the throne of King Gregor. Meanwhile, King Gregor's admirer, Nemos, was secretly plots to overthrow the king, sets out the, to prevent the prophecy from being fulfilled. So not exactly the same, but there are definitely some real similarities there. But I believe there was actually some influence on later Star Wars, wasn't there, Steve? There were. And in fact, other nods to Willow later on are even more connected to George Lucas. One major one is the opening scene of Star Wars Rebels Season 2, Episode 10 from uh, 2015, uh, called The Future of the Force. In that early scene, an infant named Alora gets taken from her grandmother. Alora's name is a nod, of course, to Alora Dannon. The next one is a bit more questionable, but worth bringing up nonetheless. Um, the scene where Mad Margigan is feeding Blackroot to Alora and Willow take, uh, takes it away was referenced in Star Wars uh, The Clone Wars Season 3, Episode 13 from 2011. 
In that episode titled Monster, the Dathomir witch Mother Talzin gives Count Dooku a drink called Blackroot. Odds are that it was probably an intentional nod, but it's admittedly not definitive. It It is a bit ironic that a fantasy film made by Lucas pre-Disney influenced Disney Star Wars. But it's, it's also understandable if you're trying to keep that spirit Lucas brings to the show. Uh, but let's get into our final thoughts on the film. Overall, I like Willow a lot more having dug into it as deep as we did for this episode. Uh, there is a lot more to the story and film than immediately meets the eye. And unfortunately for some, maybe you do have to do a lot of the work yourself uh, to get as much out of the Willow as is available for you. Or you can just listen to this episode, as we've done a lot of the work already. Then watch the film with a fresh perspective like I have. Uh, Willow was one of my favorite fantasy films as a kid, and it remains one of my favorite fantasy films to this day. Lucas makes movies for kids, and yes, I mean Star Wars and Willow, that, that rock for adults, and I love that. I would give Willow a solid four out of five, though I'm tempted to add a quarter point to that score. But, but how about you, my friend? What are your final thoughts on the film, and, and how would you rate it out of five? I actually did do a text review of this film a while back for Comic Crusaders, and my score for that was a four out of five. I, I still stand by that. Uh, Willow is an enjoyable fantasy film, and it tells an entertaining story that generally holds up decently. I think to the extent that I have issues with Willow, it's that it just doesn't do enough with it, what it has to work with. It seems like a lot of interesting ideas were left on the cutting room floor, and what we do get doesn't feel as consistent as it could have been. Um, the problem is, is that George Lucas created two of the greatest franchises in film history, and Willow just suffers a bit by comparison. But overall, Willow stands up rather nicely against the fantasy films of the 80s, and it compares well to a lot of recent fantasy shows. Um, it's by no means a bad film, and, and I think you should see it if you haven't yet. Just don't expect anything of Raiders or Empire quality out of it. I can accept that. You know, just because a film is not one of the greatest of all time doesn't mean it isn't still very good. And I, I think Willow is one of those films for sure. Uh, but that about wraps up our Willow discussion. I, I hope you've had fun hanging out with us. I know I've had fun talking about this beloved movie with Steve. As always, if you have any thoughts or commentary on the episode, we'd love to hear from you about it. Uh, thank you to our patrons who make this podcast possible. And remember these wide, wise words. Ignore the bird. Follow the river. I hope you've had fun hanging out with us today on ORP. I know that Steve and I have had fun making this episode. If you've had fun too, we invite you to share this episode and help us get the word out. For our Spotify listeners, we ask you to please rate our show as well. That can really help to grow our audience. But to all our listeners everywhere, we want to say thank you for listening and we'll see you in two weeks.